to God's Word, we want to uh, continue in our study in Corinthians, and uh, we are going to press into chapter 6, but I want to uh, back up to chapter 5, verse 9 in our reading. We're going to actually uh, move there. I would really like to back way up to um, about chapter 2, but we're going to not have you read that extensively. So we're going to have chapter 5, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to read through the entirety of chapter 6. And I'm just trying to give a good foundation today, a review of where we've been, and uh, also foundation for where we are going in the next few weeks. Uh, And so we're going to be touching verses throughout this context um, and not necessarily doing it verse by verse, as is my custom. We will be doing some of that with a particular instance that is engaged here. Um, But uh, we want to look at the broader picture today that we introduced last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning verse 9. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet certainly I did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Dare any of you having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom? I'm sorry. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me. But all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Let's go, Lord. Well, we got into a section of Scripture that uh, gets our attention. It deals with specific sins in the church and it deals with a general principle of the church's engagement with the world and how we ought to be engaging with each other. And if I was going to entitle this anything, I would say the double standard that we are called to carry. And uh, that seems, we often associate a double standard with something negative, but in fact, um, God does call us to have a double standard. And the fact is, every one of you really carries that um, in your home. We have a standard that we re- require of children who live in our home, and then we have sometimes a slightly relaxed standard for other children who come to visit our home. And... Uh, we try to minimize that distinction, that, that level of standard difference, differentiation in our home. Um, but it's there. It's, it's real. Um, and to some degree, that's exactly what we're going to talk about today, is the double standard that we are to have. Not a negative statement, but really a very positive one that's saying that we have a higher expectation for those in the family and for those who are outside of the family of God. That we do not impose our standard on them, nor do we lower our standard with regard to ourselves to match that which we expect of the world. And trying to apply this as a pastor has always been a challenge. And to keep a balanced approach to that, and we're going to discuss that today to some degree, we're going to also see uh, how it relates to um, each other and then how it relates to our world uh, and the impact of that. The, the, what is the end result of carrying that through? And we want to do that this morning by God's grace and mercy and help. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer as we get into our passage this morning. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us. And we thank you for the work that you've done in us who have trusted in you that we might be conformed to your Son, Jesus Christ, knowing that that is your will for each one in your family. We thank you for your Word and your Spirit to instruct us and enable us to know and to live according to that knowledge of what you desire for us. And Lord, we do pray that you might open our hearts to receive this, open our understanding, our minds to uh, know what you would have us know today. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, we are going to come to another judge word, and we already saw the word used in the context in chapter 2 that we're going to have to reference. Uh, we're going to follow our passage forward to another use of that word um, and that is more familiar to us, more of a, of a legal idea of judgment, of making judgments within the church and in terms of the world. And I really want to take a running start at this by going back to chapter 2, looking then into chapter 5 before we touch chapter 6. And I'm going to do a leapfrog in chapter 6 to the end of chapter 6 before we back up. And we're not going to do, make all those jumps maybe today, but I'm going to try, okay? Um, but I'm going to make sure we lay the foundation well, as I said earlier. And so we go back to chapter 2. We find that Paul talked about a certain kind of judgment that was going on there. And that judgment was a matter of, that was, and, and that word is, is uh, translated a couple of different ways in the passage here of uh, discerning. And we have the Greek word that uh, we are have to have, we should have spiritual discernment, that we should be able to recognize the right from the wrong, this, and we should be able to recognize that in our lives that please God and in our ministries that please God and that which doesn't. It is a matter of comparing myself against this standard and realizing that while I might say, well, I measure up pretty good to God's standard, it is realizing, well, that's not real discernment. Um, and so we have to be real careful about that and, and recognize that, that uh, what I see of the standard may not be um, all of it. And it's easy for us to um, kind of set blinders on our eyes so we don't see the full standard and say, oh, I can measure up to this when the standard is through the roof. And I say, oh, I can measure up to that. It's only like three feet when the standard actually is well above us, but we just don't see what's above that. And Paul says, listen, let's make sure that we are making spiritual discernments, that uh, uh, we are rightly dividing the word of truth, that we are rightly examining it and, and, and bringing it to our life, knowing that the natural man cannot do that. And that is a very key component to our understanding of our double standard. Is that we are talking about two different kind of people. We are talking about people who are natural men who cannot, not won't, cannot have that kind of spiritual discernment. They are folks in the dark, literally. Spiritually, they are darkened in their understanding. They just don't get it. And that natural man, we are going to approach with a different attitude, a different uh, measure. We're going to come to them with a, a different standard in terms of our approach, in terms of our relationship with them. It's going to be different. But we who have discernment, who do know truth from error, who do have the spiritual capacity to evaluate, uh, to discern ourselves. That we can look at ourselves and we look at ourselves rightly because we don't use our own standard. We use God's standard that we have the Holy Spirit's help in understanding and we bring it into our lives. We say, oh, well, I got a lot of work to, you know, I, I, you know and we can come like Paul and say, I'm the worst of sinners. And I say, come on, you're serving God. Well, that's man's standard might look at my life and say, well, there's a, you know, he doesn't have anything to worry about. And I've had people kind of intimate that, well, you're a pastor, you're going to get to heaven. Well, 
My occupation is not what I'm trusting in. Nor is it any level of personal righteousness the world might look at and say, I've never heard a curse word come out of that man's mouth and say, well, certainly he's going to go to heaven then. Well, that's not my standard. Because the standard that I have adopted is God's standard, which is holy, holy, holy. And every day I realize I don't measure up. And so I'm on my knees before God saying, please forgive me. I've not measured up to your standard. I've, 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 I've been a coward in terms of the gospel. I haven't walked in righteousness and truth. My thought life hasn't come into conformity, into subjection uh, to the Holy Spirit in me. And so, Lord, forgive me. You might say, well, but that's, uh, I mean, that, no, that matters. And so Paul can say, you know, I have this war going on. But the world doesn't have that war. There is no battle there. They are fully given over to their own pride and sin. And so they create their own little standard that they always are able to measure up to. They always are. They justify every sin, even if it's against the law, they justify it over and over and over again. A Christian with this kind of judgment, or we want to use a different word because it's a different word in Greek, this kind of discernment recognizes that I don't have that permission to set up my own little standard and say, see, I can jump over it real easy. Um, but rather, we have this high bar that God has set for us that He wants us to strive after. At the state track meet, my daughter was doing high, was pole vaulting. Okay? And because we have a really weak district, they decided they would drop it to the lowest of lows that you're ever allowed to pole vault, and that was six feet. Because we had some gals that couldn't make that. And the fact is that, um, at, I mean, the standards, I think, could go lower if we wanted them to, but they just weren't allowed to. Um, but yeah, we can keep lowering the standard, lowering the standard until everyone gets over it. And that's what the world does. So it's okay to commit any sin or act of, of lawlessness if you have good reason to. And all of us are have an incredible capacity to make up good reasons to do so, don't we? To lower the bar a little bit further. To lower the bar a little bit further and a little bit further. But for the Christian, we have a different perspective. And I want to go back here to see the difference between the natural man and the spiritual man because we want to bring that forward into the end part of chapter 5 and then into chapter 6 to see why does this double standard exist in our church? Why do we have one expectation for Christians and another expectation for the world? Well, it's because of capacity. We have a spiritual capacity to discern with regard to our own living. That we have a different judge, that we have a different standard, that we have a, that we have different power available to us, that we have a different understanding, that we have that which they lack. They have an incapacity in terms of light. They don't, they, they, it, they don't get it. And when they're confronted with it, it almost blinds them. Kind of like you're living in a cave and then you walk out and suddenly you're, you're confronted with the sunlight. What's the first thing you do? You do this, right? Oh, man, it's bright out here. If you visited Carlsbad Caverns, you know that. You come out of a cave, and that's even a lit cave. They have it really dimly lit, but it's lit. Um, you walk out of a real cave, and that is where the world is at. And then you come shining in there, Mr. Sunshine, you know, with the righteousness of God in your life, and you're surprised when they go like this, and they, and they shy away from it, covering their eyes. They don't want to look at it. It hurts them. 
(laughs) They're repulsed by it. That's the natural man. They're accustomed to the dark. And I remember Carlsbad, they had a little pool down there. They had these little fishies down there in the pool. That's not correct. Little fish. There we go. Who have lived all their lives in complete darkness and have grown blind. And that's the natural man. They're blind to the truth until they receive Jesus Christ. You must say, well, how can they do that? Well, that's why the Holy Spirit comes along and convicts that they might then choose to respond to that gospel. And then once they do that, worlds open up to them. The light clicks on it, and they're, and they're now able to receive it. And so we have these two going on. Now we come into chapter 5. Having that understanding of that word judgment, we're going to be using the word judging in chapter 6 extensively. But we find its application that we talked about last week with regard to a single act of sin that was going on, a single pattern of sin that was going on in the church now, sexual immorality. And Paul says, listen, when you come to those people, you have got, in the church, you have got to raise the bar. And the problem with the Corinthian churches, when they got saved, they thought instead of raising the bar, they lowered it. So here's the bar of men uh, right here at this level. And then they say, well, we're in Christ now. We're free. We have liberty. So let's lower the bar. And this is what Paul in chapter 6 is going to get to right in the middle of the chapter where he says, listen, yes, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. They're not profitable. They're not good for us. And yes, the law is gone. It has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The law has been completed. We are no longer under law, but under grace. Well, does that mean I have the grace to sin? No, we've done our study of Romans. We recognize that. Paul's still fighting that same discussion. This is the same discussion out of Romans between law and grace. Does that give us permission to sin? And Corinthians, the Corinth church, is a perfect example of a church that didn't understand it. That the recipients of God's grace does not give us permission to sin more. It gives us the power to sin less. Without law. You see, having no law for the Christian does not, is not permissiveness. Is perfectionist. Because we've done away with this law. We live well beyond it. We should live way up here. Because our standard now is not the law of God. Our standard now is the person of God. Isn't that incredible? You see, Old Testament Israel is trying to live the law of God. I'm going to try to live these Ten Commandments. And if you're a Christian and that's your goal right now, and that's great, you know, go ahead and try uh, keep on it. Um, but you know what? <laughs> um, your bar is too low. That's what we were trying to communicate last week. Jesus Christ said, you shouldn't be committing immorality. Because now that I've fulfilled the law and you have the grace of God in your life and the Holy Spirit there and you've been cleansed of all your sin and you have this new man in you, now where does the standard go? It goes to... I'm getting lust out of my life. (laughs) And if there's no lust, 
there's no immorality. And so I'm not worried about the law of God. I'm not worried about thou shalt not commit adultery. Because I'm engaging myself in I'm not going to lust. I'm not going to worry about thou shalt not kill. Because I'm engaging myself that I refuse to hate people. I don't want that in my life. As hateful as they might be and as much injury and damage they might do to me, I don't want to hate anyone. I'm going to strive in that area. And so murder doesn't become really something I'm concerned about. And as we consistently do this, we are, I'm going to use this term very carefully, we are lawless. Every, we're free. And this is brought out in Galatians. And so what becomes the social confining element is our love. And that's what Galatians says. I have, I love God and I love one, the brother and I love the world. Those are three different kinds of love. Okay, I love God differently. We sang that today. Did you see it in the song? More than anyone else, I love you. I'm going to love God uh, on this level. Now, uh, then I'm going to love the brethren. And that is a sacrificial, uh, it is a, a, that tough love, and we're going to love the brethren, and then we're going to have the love for the world, which is also sacrificial, but it's, I'm not going to be a part of. I love you, but I can't be a part of you. But I love you enough to send you a message so that you can be a part of us. Big difference. And so we have these three loves that confine us. They constrain me so that I don't have to worry about the law. And so when Paul says in chapter 6, all things are lawful for me, but that's not of my concern. I'm not worried about the law. And here these, these Corinthians thought, well, because I'm not concerned about the law, I can do anything. Wrong. <laughs> because you don't have to concern yourself with the law, you can do everything well, right, godly. You can do what is right without restraint. And again, he says in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any of them. And so I, I, I exercise self-control so that the Holy Spirit can direct my life. And ultimately, every law in our land is because men have done something evil. And that's, that's across the board. That's from our traffic laws. That's to our construction laws. That's to our zoning laws. That's to our wage laws and our employer-employee laws. That's every law in the books is essentially there that the laws that try to direct human behavior are there because someone did something evil. So why do we have construction laws, building codes? Because contractors were building shoddy things and charging for it. That became dangerous. If builders never did that and they were all honest and did their very best work with the best materials uh, and made sure that it was sturdy and going to last their lifetime, you would not see a single building code out there today. Not one. They exist because men are corrupt. 
And so when we look at the law, we say, well, if I'm not corrupt, and I'm striving after righteousness, um, I operate on a different level than the law. And for the Corinthians, they misunderstood that. And they said, well, we're without law. That means we can do whatever we want. And they entered into every kind of debauchery out there with this idea that no one can judge us because we're without any law. And Paul says, this isn't what it means. Because you are spiritually discerning, and you claim that, I mean, boy, did they claim that, um, you should have been able to discern this spiritual reality that being without law puts you on a higher level, not a lower level. We don't need that law here. I don't need a law here in this room against murder with any of you. Not if we're all spiritually discerning. What do we need that law for? I don't like what you said, Pastor. <laughs> Shouldn't need it among the church. Neither should we need any moral laws. Not, none of them. We shouldn't need any of them. Because if you're here and you love God and want to demonstrate that love for Him, as He demonstrated for you, you want to reflect that love, and, and then I don't need to impose any legal system on you to make you do that. If you're here and you want to love one another, I don't need to impose any legalistic system upon you to impose that. You should be doing that. Uh, and if you want to love the world, um, not the things of the world, but if you want to love those in the world and have compassion on their need for Christ, I shouldn't have to impose any legal system on you to make you do that. But the fact is, the church has failed here miserably, and I'm going to tell you how. I'm going to give you one example and show you how the church has failed this Corinthian principle um, and something that we don't do as a church. We do not have what is called a church covenant. How many of you have ever heard of a church covenant? Okay, some of you who have been in this church for most of your Christian life don't know what a church covenant is. Um, a church covenant is a something every church member agrees to that says this is how we're going to live in our society. We will not get drunk. We're not going to do this. We're not going to... Um, uh, and it just basically goes through a whole list of things. We're not going to go to movies. We're not going to play playing cards. Yes, those kinds of things were in church covenants 60 years ago. Okay, um, and so and they had all these things. And, and what was the idea behind that? Is that here's a rule for life. Well, Corinthians says you don't have a need for that. Because the rule for the Christian life is I am going to live in a loving relationship with a holy, holy, holy God. And I'm going to strive after that. And this covenant with other men Really? Do I need that? When I'm striving after... And by the way, even the what would Jesus do isn't enough. I'm after this highest standard. And this, Paul says in her church, listen, you've got to make this moral judgment. And so he starts listing them off and he says, listen, you've got these people in your church that are sexually immoral, that are covetous, that are idolaters, that are revilers, that are drunkards, that are extortioners. You don't have any part with them. You've got to extract them. You've got to put them out of your body because you cannot have that in the church. They are demonstrating that they are living for themselves and not living by the law of love. 
They're not showing that they are outside of the law. So are we going to establish a law by which we cast people out? No, we are going to do that based upon what is ungodly. Get it out of here. Period. Well, my sin isn't on this list. Who cares? We're not talking about a law. We're talking about the person of Jesus Christ, of God Almighty. That's who we're living to. And by God's grace and mercy and power to the Holy Spirit within us, we know that that gossip or that white lie is not pleasing to Him. It shouldn't be in our life. We know that those words that we say that are antagonistic or that that are there to turn and twist the knife into somebody's heart, we know it's wrong. We're doing it for our own selfish reasons. So just because your sin isn't on this list, don't think that somehow you're off the, off the hook. Because the list isn't... Because the, Paul's just giving examples. He's not giving extensive law. He goes on. And by the way, he expands that in chapter 6. Do you see it there? I like the expanded version. Let's just see it. And, and none of them are, are complete. This isn't exhaustive. This is not his exhaustive concordance of, law, of sin that shouldn't be in the church. Verse 9 says, Do you not know? And by the way, this is something he keeps saying over. Do you notice it? We keep coming with these four words. Do you not know? You claim to be spiritual people with godly discernment. You are the ones who are supposed to know the mind of the Lord. Don't you know this? How can you not know this and claim to be know the mind of the Lord? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will enter into the kingdom of God. So we got a little bit longer list than up in chapter 5. We might say, well, I haven't done any of those things. Um, Well, we get down to that covetousness and things like that. But, uh, well, I... No one can tell that because that's in my heart. Wrong. It's very evident. You can tell covetous person all the time. Very simple. Because when covetous people, they want something, you they'll let everyone know it and they'll do incredible things to get it. Not because they need it, because they want it. Not because they can afford it, because they want it. And so we have this list and we have these given to us as examples to say, listen, if this is the drive of your life towards all this sin, then where is God's work in you? Where is the righteousness of God that was imputed to you? Where is it? And that's the standard that we put upon the church. Where is your holiness? Where is that discernment that says, I know the mind of God. I have an insight into that because God resides here within me. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that He's in you? You have Him of God. You're not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which is God's. We know what glorifies God in our bodies. He's going to bring up food issues. We're going to deal with that in a couple of weeks. Um, He's going to deal with moral issues that He just dealt with last week. Um, he's dealing with this stuff, and then what we're going to have, um, maybe we'll get to today, 
um, with this whole idea of going into the world's arena of judgment. We know. We have spiritual discernment. If we have Christ, we should know this. We should recognize it. And it should tear our hearts when this sin gets a hold of us and we work it out and we live it out and we exercise it. And then as a body, it should tear us up to hear it, to see it, to have it in our midst. And just like the individual who should respond by ripping those things out of his life and conducting himself as a soldier of the cross and of the holiness of God, engaging in the warfare against the flesh, we should sometimes, when called upon, be ready to rip it out of our life. That person. That out of the body, out of the family, that this one who claims Christ, who claims to know the mind of the Lord, claims to have this kind of discernment, then lives in this pattern, we must make a different conclusion. That conclusion is, we need to put that one away. Leave. Not just leave our formal worship services, but you're going to leave my fellowship. And if that means leaving my home, then that is the case. That means leaving entirely. I don't want you in my life until you decide to live for God. Live what you claim. Remove the hypocrisy and live what you claim. And if you want to deny what you claim, if you're going to say, no, I'm not a Christian, well, now I'll go back and I'll treat you like a natural man and you're going to just hear the gospel from me all the time. And my... Intimacy with you is going to be on that level. I'm going to deal with you as with a heathen that I'm not going to have you as a close friend. Um, and every relationship that I'm doing is trying to draw you into receiving Christ as your Savior. One way or the other, it's going to radically change my relationship with you from this point on. Oh, we would have the courage and the fortitude to do what Paul called the Corinthians to do. And by the way, which they did do. They did follow his instructions. So there's a standard for us. But then Paul says, hey, we got a different standard for those outside. And this is real key to understanding chapter 6. Is we understand the world is full of these kinds of people. And in fact, that's what drives them. And covetousness drives, is the drive of the free market system. It's the drive of, of capitalism. Um, and, and if truth be told, it's the drive of communism too. hate to tell you that. Um, it's the drive of every system of man is built upon these kinds of attitudes, this kind of sin. The world itself recognizes it and, and uh, condemns self. And so every communist condemns every capitalist. Every capitalist I met condemns communism. But they're both wrong. I condemn them all. We're not called any of those isms. We're called to a kind of life that is so radical that they all just go, huh? I don't even know what to call that. Christianity, that's what it's called. We don't live that anymore. Most of you are more dedicated to capitalism than you are to Christ. 
Most Christians I encounter in our country are more dedicated capitalism than Jesus Christ. I hear it on Christian radio. I hear these people defending it. Why? What is Christian about it? Does God's Word call us to that? Really? Read through Acts. Find out if the church is doing that kind of stuff. Read through the epistles. Listen to Christ. Is that what He espoused? I don't find it. Democracy? More of our churches are committed to the democratic system of our republic than to Christ. In fact, we bring it into our system of government in the church. The majority rules. Since when? We were really taking the task, not so much in this church because I knew who not to invite um, by then. I just grew up in the, a little bit. But at charity, when we were setting up our constitution up there, how we're going to conduct ourselves as a, as a church uh, body in terms of conducting business, um, we made it a requirement that you had to have over uh, 50% uh, for a quorum. That was for a quorum, not for a vote, for a quorum. And that, uh, and we have this weird kind of, it's on our rule book, but we exercise this, um, we expect a 100% vote or we table it. And boy, you should have heard the pastor say, You're, this is crazy. You will never be able, to, you will never be able to do ministry with that kind of philosophy. Point blank. Say, you are going to hog tie every church that you pastor with this kind of stuff. It will never go off. Hmm. Well, I've been in the ministry for over 20 years now. Oh, it's almost 30. 25 years now. It seems to be getting off, all right. Because I don't preach democracy. I don't preach the majority rules. Because from what I could tell, one prophet outweighed a whole nation. But you listen to Christian radio and see what they espouse. By the way, God never established a democratic nation. The government for Israel was a monarchy. Before that, God was in charge. Through the priests, Levites. God never did that. Man did that. But we come to society with this idea and we absorb these things around us and we think, well, these are godly because we do them. Instead of saying we should do things that are godly, we take the things we already do and we make them godly. And this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. And Paul condemns them. It says, you just want to do what you want to do and then you want to step back after doing it and, and say, oh, it's godly. It's not. Christianity is radically different. The government of a church is radically different. It's a weird system. Because you're all priests. It's a weird thing. And so when one person stands up and says, this isn't right, then and, and 99 other people say, we don't care, we're going to vote for it. That one person is right. And I'm going to listen to him. Because right is right, no matter how many vote for it. That's Christianity. Yes, 
10 million people can be wrong. Those of you who weren't around long enough to know that's what McDonald's, you know, how can 10 million people be wrong or 100 million people be wrong? They've eaten here. They can be wrong. And congestive heart failure proves it. (laughs) We have a different standard in the church. We don't govern like the world. Nor should we talk like the world. We, we are not to live like the world. We hold each other up to that standard. We challenge one another to that standard. And so I can come up to someone who's a believer and I can, I can challenge them and say, hey, um, you know, you can do better. Well, I'm not sinning. I didn't say that. I said you can do better. But your attitude of saying you're not sinning. Now that's sin. You better get that out of your life. Because that's pride. And that is the source of all sin. And when I see you really sinning, violating the holiness of God, we come and we can't convict you. You're already convicted. You're just resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We come and confront you. Because that's what you do in church. It's weird. It's different. What kind of authority are you carrying, Pastor? That of God. What kind of authority is this brother in Christ coming to me with that uh, can question how I live? And we all got that one passage memorized, don't we? Well, cast out the beam in your own eye before you worry about my moat. I could just hear this guy living with his stepmother saying that. Um, By the way, uh, Christ didn't say you didn't have permission to go get the moat out of your brother's eye. He said, first get the beam out of yours, then go after that moat. Isn't that great? Moats in our eyes are not acceptable. They should irritate you in the church. Sin should irritate the church just like a splinter in your eye would irritate you and you would never stop till you got it out. You're not going to, I'll just live with that for a few days and walk around like this. Is that what you do? With splinters in your eye? No, you stop everything. And you say, I've got to get this out before I do anything else. Oh, the church would have that kind of attitude towards sin. We're going to stop everything. Stop. We're going to deal with this right now. Get this out of here. We can't do anything that pleases God as long as that's in there. We're going around like this. That's the standard for the church. It's huge. I do not have biblical permission to impose that standard on anyone else. But when it comes to everyone in the church who claims the name of Christ, I have the authority of God to address that. When we're dealing with one another, we now have a problem if there's real sin going on in the church that is against each other. And that's what was going on. It was really going on with this guy in immorality as well. Um, But these guys were sinning against each other. I mean, once you take away the law... Once you take away law, but you don't have a spiritual understanding of what that means because you're supposed to live up to God's grace and mercy and His holiness, and you lower the bar instead of raising the bar by taking away the law, and now you're living in the muck and mire of lawlessness, you better believe they're injuring each other. 
They were conducting shady deals with each other. They were being dishonest with each other. They were doing things that are against the law to each other. And so because they were against the law to each other, even though I can't do anything in the church because my church has removed all the bars and we are now here wallowing in the pit of sin, um, I can't do anything about it in the church. So I'm going to take them. I'm going to go out into the society where at least they have a low bar over here called the law and I'm going to hold them to that law. And Paul says, you've already failed. As soon as you have to do that, you are to be utterly ashamed. You have completely, totally failed as a church. And from my understanding of the of, Zeph, of Malachi, you ought to close the doors. But Paul says, let's get you up out of the muck and mire and let's see if we can fix this, you baby Christians. So they were taking each other to court over these things that were this injury that they were doing to each other financially and morally within the church. And so they couldn't do anything about, you know, this person saying nasty things about me that aren't true. I can't do anything in the church because uh, there's no standard. So I'm at least going to go out into the world, find where they have at least a legal standard that you can't, you know, say those things about people. You know, we have those statutes in our country against slander. And so um, I'm going to take them into a court of the world and I'm going to seek to at least impose them against the standard of the law of slander. And Paul says, what are you doing? Are you that foolish? Are you that ignorant of what God is? About the work of God in you? About who you are and what the demands of us are? You've already utterly failed, he says in verse 7, by going to law against each other. In fact, he makes a statement, it would be better to accept wrong than to do that. Let them sin against you. Take it. Now I want to bring Christ into this because he gives us a wonderful example, I think, in his um, time and trial. And Jesus had a double standard during his trial. I don't know if you recognize it, but if you can think back to his trial days, the Bible says that uh, as a lamb before the shears is silent, um, so he opened not his mouth. Which is... We might look at Christ and say, well, that's not completely true. Well, it is with respect to one party that was judging him, and that was his people. And we find that Jesus Christ had a very different attitude and relationship with the religious leaders of his day who illegally tried him during the night. He said nothing to them. They had the law. They had every. They knew. They had um, all this information. They knew what they were doing was wrong. They knew that they were being condemned for that. They knew that His blood was going to be on their shoulders. He had nothing to tell them because they had the truth. He held them to this high standard. They were condemned by their very activity. He had nothing to tell them. They knew. Then they trot Him over to the Roman court. And poor Pilate. Well, I feel for him. 
I mean, you wake up one day, your wife's had this bad dream, don't have anything to do with that guy, and you're confronted with this man. And you can't answer the question, what is truth? He asked the question honestly, but I want you to look at Christ. How did Christ engage Pilate? Silence? No. He didn't try to defend himself, but he did engage Pilate. And, and, and answered his questions. I, I am. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, I would have told my people to fight, but it's not of this world. I am as you said. I am the king. And look at Pilate's response. I find no fault in this man. You see, Pilate came at it from the legal perspective. That's all he knew was Roman law. He didn't understand the Old Testament. He didn't have a contact with that. He didn't, he didn't grasp Jewish law. He didn't have the truth. He was a wanderer. He was in dark. The only standard that was available to him to judge was the standard of the law. Israel had something better than that. They had the law of God. And they violated it themselves in order to condemn Christ. And for that, Christ had nothing to say to them. They were condemned for their act. Pilate would be given some opportunity to recognize who this Jesus is, that he's not the one you, that he's been portrayed as by these that give false witness. He knew. He knew that his own people propped up these false witnesses and paid them to lie. He didn't have to say they're lying, they're lying. He didn't have to because everyone in the room knew they're lying. The judges themselves paid them to lie. But in front of Pilate, as few as his words were, he did have some words for Pilate. Because Pilate was in the dark. And Christ's basic statement was, you know, it's really out of your hands, Pilate. This is going to happen. <laughs> Doesn't matter what you say or how, it's going to happen. We find Pilate going out to the people and saying, uh, trying, trying to do what's right. Trying to get Jesus out free and clear. Which, by the way, um, Paul had that same relationship if you look at he had a very antagonistic relationship with the religious council, with the Sanhedrin, but he had a different relationship with Roman governors and Roman judges. Why? Because he recognized these are in the dark. These claim to have the light. These claim to be righteous. And so they have a standard against them. And they are condemned because they know what's right and they choose not to do it. And in the church, we stand in that same level of condemnation that yes, we can be condemned for things the world isn't judged for. Because we know the truth. And we choose not to do it. And yes, I hold Christians to a higher standard. I've been asked several times, you know, how can you marry two people that... that uh, are come to you and they're not believers and they're uh, have divorce in their background because you've told me that that you won't marry me if I'm divorced and I was like I have a different standard for them they're two unbelievers I'd rather they get married than live together and sin they're in the dark I share Christ with them but I get them married society says that's good and as an agent of the state I do it well why won't you do that for Christians because they know better. 
Well, they ought to. Because we have a different standard. The law of this land says that these two divorcees can get married. The law of the church says it shouldn't happen. We have a different standard. The law of the land says that it's legal to go into bankruptcy. The law of God says it's not. Not the law of God, but the, the holy, holy, holy God. We know it's not. We know it's not right. The law of the land says it's okay to get drunk as long as you don't hurt anybody. Don't drive home that way. The church, we know better. Don't we? I mean, one right after another, just take your pick. Yes, there are two standards. We have one for ourselves and one for them. God does too. He has an expectation of you as His people. No differently than I have a different expectation for the children in my home than the children who visit my home. I don't impose those standards on other families because they're mine. We don't impose our standards on the world, nor do we go to the world and expect them to understand us. There was at least one occasion that we know in the book of Acts where the religious people of the community tried to take the Christians to court. And it kind of backfired on them. The court says, I don't have anything to do with your religious law. And he beat the Jews instead of the Christians and threw them out. Well, that judge, believe it or not, had a better understanding of the book of Corinthians than most churches today. What are you doing in front of me with your standards? Get out of here. <laughs> and Paul basically says, shame on you. If someone in the church wants to do you injury, they're in that kind of sin, um, it would be better for you to let it happen. Deal with it as a church. Don't go to court over this stuff. Um, why are you in front of a judge? You live on a different standard. And so you at least be able to find someone among your number that can deal with this. And if the person who's doing your injury will not recognize the authority of that person, take it. Take that injury. Whether it's financial, physical, emotional, take the injury. God is more honored by you taking the injury than taking it to court with each other. The Corinthians are getting schooled on righteousness. But yeah, being righteous and having this kind of standard, being without law because we are above law, um, calls us to some really strange things. To say, I'm going to take that injury. I'm going to let those people slander my name. And I'm going to say nothing. I'm going to take it. Like Christ took it. Knowing that it's better for me to do that for the testimony of Christ than to take it to court and to get my rights, my legal rights invoked. No. We stand on a different plane. And that plane's demands um, the world can never understand. Never. And shame on us if we're doing this kind of injury like the Corinthians were doing to each other that would have a standing in a legal court because we should be way above that.
Imagine going to court and saying, they didn't give me enough. Not they didn't pay me enough for work that I did. They didn't give me enough. Because we were called to give, to be generous, to care for one another's burdens. Can you imagine going into the court and saying, you know, I was in trouble and they didn't help me out enough? What's the court going to do? They're going to laugh at you. <laughs> what makes you think that that's their responsibility? You come to me. It's a serious matter in our church. And it'll be dealt with that way. Because you see, we're way above legalities and saying, what is right? What is godly? And this is what we strive after as individual believers and also as a body of saints. Well, next week we're going to talk about judging a little bit more. We're going to talk about what our role is going to be in eternity, how to implement that here. But this foundation needs to be well established. We do have a double standard. One for you in the church. That I apply to every Christian who claims Christ that I meet, whether it's in Haiti or India or anywhere. And they have a right to claim it on me. That standard, this is what the Bible says. Why aren't you living it? And then we have a different standard for the world. We expect them to sin. We understand they are in the dark. We are not appalled by their immorality, by their covetousness, by their reviling, by their drunkenness, by their extorting. We're not appalled by that. We anticipate it. That's why we are to walk carefully in this world. Harmless as does, but wise as serpents. We do not embattle ourselves with the world over their system. We live our system, which is above any system of law. And so this principle is applied, whether it's in a communist China, whether it's in socialist Europe, whether it's in capitalistic, I know you think you're a democracy, but you're not, uh, Republic of the United States. The principle applies because the church lives above them all and can function in a manner that pleases God because the government, no government of men was designed by God. The government of the church, this is God's working. A group of fellow priests living out holiness with one another before a holy, holy, holy God. That needs to be our living here. That should be our government. That should be our system. And no law of any land can ever override that.